Well, today we're going to look at one of the most mysterious people in all of Bible history. A person who had always appeared as an anomaly in the Bible record, an inexplicable character. That is until he's explained in the letter of Hebrews. The person I'm talking about is Melchizedek. That funny name that you were going, I'm not sure I even know how to say that one. But we're picking up the subject that the author of Hebrews dropped back in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10. A comparison of the priesthoods of Jesus and Melchizedek contrasted with the Levitical priesthood of the Jewish religion. If you have been following along over the past several weeks, you will remember that the author interrupted his discussion about the priesthood of Jesus at Hebrews 5.10 to address what he believed to be a very serious problem with many of the people that he was writing to. Hebrews 5.11, he writes, We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. They were not making the kind of progress that they should in their knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ. They were no longer trying to understand, he says here. They were lazy. They were not putting any effort into trying to grow in Christ. Many of them had been Christians, he says, long enough that they ought to be teachers of others themselves by now, but instead they needed to be instructed again and again in the most basic elements of their Christian faith, the ABCs of Christianity. They were still drinking milk from a bottle, he said, when they ought to be eating solid food. And so he gives them a warning that they need to get with it. This lackadaisical attitude that they have about their relationship with Jesus Christ is not a good course for them to be on. And it's not a good course for any of us to be on either. Hebrews 6.1, he writes, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. And God permitting, we are going to do just that today as we enter into Hebrews chapter 7. If you've got your Bible, you can flip over to Hebrews chapter 7. And that's where we'll be at today. Some of the stuff that we will be talking about will be brand new for some of you. It's the kind of stuff that's not talked about in church sermons very often for fear that people will not put up with it since it demands some thinking on our part, and it's not the kind of thing that has obvious direct connection for a person's day-to-day -day life. We don't want to settle, though, for a subset of Christianity that only focuses on life skills and felt needs. That is a very self-centered kind of Christianity. It's all about me. We want instead to grow in our understanding of the theological underpinnings of our Christian faith. The more we understand about what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, the more we will worship God and feel secure in our relationship with Him. We move our attention off of ourselves and onto Him. 
Now, to help us appreciate the comparison between Jesus and Melchizedek and the contrast with the Levitical priesthood, the author, he spends the first 10 verses of chapter 7 here reviewing the history of Melchizedek and pointing out how, as a priest, Melchizedek is superior to the Levitical priests, the priesthood of the Old Covenant Jewish religion. You might remember that we did a similar thing back in chapter 1 where Jesus is compared with angels so that we could appreciate the comparison that the author was making. We, we had to have an understanding of what the Bible teaches about angels and the role that they serve in God's interaction with the human race. And then we did a similar thing too back in chapter 3 when Jesus is compared to Moses. So that we could appreciate that comparison, we needed to have an understanding of who Moses was and how God had used him. Now we have a similar thing happening here in this comparison. In the previous comparisons, though, with angels and Moses, we had to do some of that work on our own to build our understanding of what was being compared to Jesus. This time, the author actually does a lot of that work for us. You might answer, you might ask why. Well, in the case of angels and Moses, most of the readers of that day of this letter of Hebrews, they already had a pretty good understanding of these things. So the author, he relied on that understanding that he knew that they had. But in the case of angels, for example, they didn't have the same cartoony, false mythology about angels that we have in our culture today. Uh, they saw angels as a majestic, powerful being, where we see them as these chubby, cute, little, you know, Cupid shooting arrows type thing. And that's not the kind of angel that Jesus is being compared with at all. In the case of Moses, most of these people were Jewish converts to Christianity. So they were well acquainted with who Moses was already uh, as the one whom God had given the Jewish moral and religious law to them through. We, on the other hand, were not Jewish Christians of the first century. So we needed to do some background work to help us understand uh, what the author was driving at in those comparisons. Well, in the present comparison here between Jesus and Melchizedek and the Levitical priesthood. Not even the Jewish people of the first century had a good understanding of Melchizedek in order to draw upon to understand this comparison. So Melchizedek is explained because Melchizedek had always been a mystery and a puzzlement even to them. The author, he takes the time to make sure that we all understand the significance of this mysterious person and the details surrounding this character in the Old Testament before proceeding to the rest of his argument. And that's what we're going to be doing today in these first 10 verses of Hebrews 7. So in the first verse, Hebrews 7, it begins, it says, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Uh, is there something going on with the lights? Okay. Well, there you go. 
You guys can still hear me. You don't really need to see me. There's really not much to look at anyway, so. <laughs> Might even be better if I just like spoke behind a black screen so that you didn't ever see me. That would probably be better. Exactly, like the Wizard of Oz. Play, pay no attention to that man up there behind the pulpit kind of thing. But Melchizedek is only mentioned twice in the entire Old Testament. In Psalm 110, verse 4, which the author has already quoted in Hebrews 5, 6, says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, this quotation from Psalm 110, it doesn't give us a whole lot of information to go on about Melchizedek, although there's more there than we might think, as we will discover. The only other place Melchizedek is mentioned in the Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, which tells of Abraham's encounter with him. The story of Genesis chapter 14 goes like this. The story is told about five kings of the Jordan Plain who had been defeated and subjected to the king of Elam for 12 years. These five kings then decided that they had had enough. So they joined forces and they rebelled against the king of Elam. In response, the king of Elam and his three allies, they marched down to teach these rebels a lesson and bring them back into submission. So the battle lines were drawn between the four kings and the five kings. The king of Elam and his three allies, they routed the five kings. And the conquering armies ransacked the cities of the five kings, carrying off everything of value. Well, one of the defeated cities of those five kings was Sodom, which was where Abraham's nephew Lot was living at the time. Lot and his family and all of their possessions were carried off along with all of the other plunder and people to become slaves. Well, when Abraham heard what had happened, he quickly assembled a rescue force and he went after them. And amazingly, he and his men caught up to this group and they launched a surprise attack defeating the captors and recovering Lot and all of the other people and the plunder. Then on Abraham's way back home from this battle, he was met by Melchizedek. Genesis 14, 18, it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Well, that's it. Those are the only places that Melchizedek is mentioned in the Old Testament and all of the information given about this mysterious character. But there's more here than meets the eye, and that's what the author now draws out for us in these next verses. So in the second part of chapter, or, uh, chapter 7, verse 2, he says, First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem means king of peace. Now, as we go through these verses, 
realize that the author is showing us how Melchizedek was a pointer to Jesus Christ, resembling him in many ways, sharing many of his qualities. And these things pointed out about Melchizedek are things that are true about Jesus as well. So the first thing that the author draws our attention to about Melchizedek is his name. It says, first, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. We've talked before about the significance of names in the ancient world. The, a, a person's name was much more than just a label. The name defined a person's character, their nature, their authority, their personality. And Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, was a king of righteousness. Righteousness characterized him and his kingdom. Righteousness was his nature. To be righteous means to be in a condition that's acceptable to God. He was right before God. He did what was right in the eyes of God. He lived in a way that was consistent with, in agreement with, in alignment with God's will and purpose. It reminds us of what is said in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9 about Jesus when the author quotes from Psalm 45, 6, and 7 saying about Jesus that the scepter of his kingdom is justice or righteousness and that he loves righteousness. Well, the next thing that the author points out to us about Melchizedek here is his title. It says, King of Salem, which means King of Peace. Salem comes from the same root as the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. And Melchizedek's title was literally King of Peace. It reminds us of a familiar title of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Prince of Peace. Well, taken together, Melchizedek is King of Righteousness and King of Peace. These two themes, righteousness and peace, they play important roles in our salvation, don't they? The righteousness of Jesus Christ has brought us peace with God. Romans 5.1 tells us that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Salem is also the ancient name for the city of Jerusalem, which adds additional interest and connections to this comparison between Jesus and Melchizedek. Melchizedek was king of Salem, or king of Jerusalem, which would become the city of David, the capital of Israel, the location of the temple, the center of worship, the place where the sacrifices were offered under the Old Covenant, the place where Jesus Christ would be crucified as a sin sacrifice for all humankind. Ground zero for the salvation of the human race. Verse 3 says, Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So the next thing that the author does, he points out Melchizedek's family tree. Without father or mother, without genealogy. No one knows who his father or mother were. No one knows anything about his ancestry or his relatives. Similar to Jesus, Melchizedek was a priest from a different tribe than that of Levi. Jesus and Melchizedek are of a different order as priests from the Levitical priests. 
the Levitical priests were priests because they were descendants of Levi. The qualifications for them being priests was based on genealogy, not based on how good they were as a priest, how much they had studied, what kind of a human being they were. You're a descendant of Levi, you're a priest. For Melchizedek and Jesus, their priesthood was not based on family descent, but on their intrinsic character, the quality of their life and what they had done. The virgin birth of Jesus also comes to mind for us here, though, too, doesn't it? The the young woman Mary becoming pregnant in a very unusual, mysterious way with the Holy Spirit coming down upon her. Jesus is both human and God. The next thing that the author highlights about Melchizedek has to do with his lifespan. It says, without beginning of days or end of life. Now, some have have taken this to mean that Melchizedek never died, but the text doesn't really say that. What can be said about the actual Old Testament reference is that nothing is said about the birth or the death of Melchizedek. It remains in mystery here. It's not talked about. But Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Without beginning of days or end of life, he has always been and will always be. He lives forever. In John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, Jesus Christ, King of Righteousness, King of Peace, priest not based on genealogy but on his intrinsic character, having an unending life, remaining a priest forever. It's important for us to note that it says Melchizedek is like the Son of God, not that the Son of God is like Melchizedek. The Son is the original that sets and establishes the pattern that Melchizedek resembled and pointed us to Jesus from. There there are certain truths about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that the record of Melchizedek draws out, but these truths, they find their full and complete expression in the Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, it says, Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Abraham was a great man in his own right. Of all of the people on earth, God chose Abraham and gave him the promises that we talked about last time. The Lord promised to make Abraham into a great nation of people and to bless the whole world through him. The Messiah would come through his lineage. The Jews considered Abraham the father of their people. It was this same man, Abraham, from whom Melchizedek received a tenth of the plunder that 
he recovered from the four kings in Genesis chapter 14. In the ancient world, it was not uncommon to give a portion of the plunder to your god or to an important religious figure as an expression of thanksgiving for this victory. Implicit within this offering was an acknowledgement of your subjection to the one that you paid this tithe to. And so Abraham, giving a tenth of the plunder to Melchizedek, was an open acknowledgement by Abraham that he considered Melchizedek his superior. If the great patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder, consider how great Melchizedek was, he says here. And then verse 5 Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises." So he's saying that under the religious law of Moses, the descendants of Levi, who served as priests, they collected a tenth or tithe from the rest of the Israelite people, even though they and the people that they are collecting the tithe from were both descendants of Abraham. They're on equal ground. The the Levitical priests, they collected the tithes from the people because of a provision in the law of Moses, not because of any inherent superiority that they had over the rest of the people. They had a right granted to them by the religious law to collect that tithe. Melchizedek, on the other hand, he says, collected a tithe from Abraham not because of any law, but because of the inherent superiority that he had over Abraham. He was not part of the family of Levi or the family of Abraham. He was a solitary figure of authority and grandeur. And Abraham recognized his obligation to pay this tithe to Melchizedek. Verse 7 hang in there. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So not only did Melchizedek collect this tithe, this tenth from Abraham, but he blessed Abraham. And the author makes the point, the greater blesses the lesser. Because Abraham had received the special promises from God, he was thought to be superior to everybody. I mean, he was a unique human being in all of the world to receive this from God himself. But that wasn't true when it came to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was superior even to this one who had received those special promises from God. Verse 8. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. So the author now highlights once again the point that he made back in verse 3 about Melchizedek's unending life to emphasize again the superior nature of Melchizedek's priesthood over the Levitical priesthood. He says, hey, the people 
in the Levitical priesthood, they died. Melchizedek, on the other hand, is a person declared to be living. Later in this same chapter in Hebrews, verse 16, it'll say about Jesus as a priest, that he's a priest based on the base that on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. I love that description, don't you? That Jesus is a priest on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. I mean, if there was ever a superhero, you're looking at him right here. One with an indestructible life. Verse 9, one might even say that Levi, who collects the tithe, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. One of the implications of Abraham paying the tithe to Melchizedek, he says, is that Levi also paid a tithe to Melchizedek because in that culture, an ancestor contained within him Self, all of his descendants, all of the blessings Abraham received were also given to his descendants. All of the promises that Abraham received were also promised to his descendants. All of the obligations of Abraham were also obligations of his descendants because they were all inside him when he received these things and when he did these things. Melchizedek is superior not only to Abraham, but to all of his descendants, including the Levitical priests. So, summarizing all of what has been said here about Melchizedek, is, it says that he was a king of righteousness. He was a king of peace. He came from a different genealogy than the Levitical priest, which meant he was a priest not because of lineage, but because of his intrinsic character. He had an unending life, making him a priest forever. He collected a tenth from Abraham, the father of the Jews, not because of a law allowing him to do that, but because of his greater authority and honor over Abraham. And he blessed Abraham, the father of the Jews. Abraham receiving that blessing demonstrated Abraham's submission to him. The author of Hebrews has now laid his foundation for the rest of what he's going to tell us in Hebrews chapter 7, which we'll look at next time. I don't want your head to blow up. Some of you are like, going, all right, are we done yet? It's like, Easy. Don't forget what he said. Some of you have become lazy, no longer trying to understand. So it's like we go, okay, we got to hang in there, man. Because he's he like dropped the challenge on us in chapter five, because he knew when we got to chapter seven it was going to get rough. See? In the rest of chapter 7, he's going to explain the implications of these comparisons between Melchizedek and the Levitical priests as they relate to Jesus Christ and what it means for us as followers of the perfect high priest, Jesus. See, in the same way that Melchizedek was superior in every respect to the priests of the Old Covenant, Jesus Christ is superior to all. 
Now, some of you may have sat through all of this stuff today and were asking yourselves, well, so what? What relevance does all of this have to me? Why should I care? And the relevance is this, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. God in human flesh who came to rescue us from our separation from God that resulted from our sin. What we have in Hebrews chapter 7 is important evidence presented to us testifying to the identity of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for us. The scope of the priestly work of Jesus reaches beyond anything that anyone else has ever done or anyone else ever could do. He has accomplished salvation for us. And this salvation is something that God has been working out in the fabric of human history from the very beginning. Jesus said to the religious leaders of the day in John chapter 8, verse 56, he said, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Well, steeped in their self-assured pride, those religious leaders mockingly responded, You're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus was telling them that he indeed existed before Abraham, and that Abraham rejoiced, knowing that Jesus, the Savior, was coming to bring salvation. What blessed people we are to be living in the time that we're living, seeing the salvation that Jesus has brought, and being receivers of it. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, the way that you have brought salvation and you have weaved it throughout human history coming to that great day when your son would appear and give his life for all of us. And now we can know you personally through him, Father, in a unique way that changes everything. I ask that you would encourage us and bless us, Lord, and remind us of how great you are and what great things you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.